Whom have we in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth we desire besides you. Our heart and our flesh may fail, but God, you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. And so may it be now, Lord, as we open up your word. We want to hear from you as we look at this passage. It's so hard to imagine sometimes that the, your people could get so crosswise with an apostle, the apostle Paul, uh, like they did. But we know that we are not so very different. So we know that we need your help and that we need to hear from you. And so, Lord, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And, Father, we ask you to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of you know that the last book in C.S. Lewis's Narnia series is titled The Last Battle. And at the end of the, that book, there's this scene of divine judgment, and it's a kind of a final Narnia-style new creation that Aslan unfolds there. Aslan, of course, is this Christ figure, and all of the creatures are judged according to whether or not they've had allegiance to Aslan. And just before the final assize, there's this scene involving the dwarfs of Narnia. Narnia. By the way, somehow I've gotten through my whole life without making it all the way through the Narnia series. I'd read Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but I never read the whole thing. Just finished it this week, so this, is, this has been on my, my mind. But at the very end of it, the, the, the main characters, King Tyrion and, of Narnia and the children from Earth, Eustace and Jill, they rescue about 30 dwarfs from being enslaved by Narnia's enemies. And instead of responding with gratitude to being saved, all but one of the dwarves refused to fight alongside of King Tyrion and Jill and Eustace. And so why do they refuse? Well, the reason they refuse is because Tyrion and Eustace and Jill, they serve Aslan. And the dwarves were, were done with Aslan. They weren't going to serve Narnia's enemies, but they weren't going to serve Aslan either. They no longer trust Aslan. And so they had been taken in along with everybody else in Narnia by this false Aslan figure who had been set up previously. And they declare that they're never going to be taken in again by another Aslan. And so their new creed is the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. And they adopt this very cynical view of Aslan that darkens their hearts and their deeds from that point forward. And one of the dwarfs named Griffel, he says it this way. He says, I feel I've heard as much as, about Aslan as I want to hear for the rest of my life. We've been taken in once and now you expect us to be taken in the next minute? We, are no more, we have no more use for stories about Aslan. And so even after the dwarfs find themselves in Aslan's land, at the very end, they're in Aslan's country. It's this beautiful, lush country. It's the real Narnia. They can't even see it. They won't acknowledge it, that they're even there. Everyone else there sees this beautiful, bountiful land, but all they see is darkness. 
They can't see the good because they won't see the good. And that's the key. They're slaves to their cynicism by this point. And they can neither see the beauty of Aslan's country, nor can they see the beauty of Aslan himself. Instead, they imagine themselves still trapped in an old, dark, musty stable. Even when Aslan speaks to them and he tries to convince them that they are free dwarves, it's to no avail. They, stay, they, they hear this and they say, starting a new lie, trying to make us believe we're none of us shut up and it ain't dark and heaven knows about what. They just don't believe it. They insist that Aslan isn't even really there, even though he's right in front of them. So they say, we're not going to be taken in again. And so Aslan turns to Jill and to, Trilli, to Tyrion and to Eustace and explains to them what's going on. And this is what he says. He says, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own mind. Yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. And so what Lewis is trying to show in this little story of the dwarves is that it's possible to become so angry and so self-involved that you become a prisoner to your own cynicism. Your cynicism can so distort your vision that you cannot even acknowledge or see the most perfect and beautiful of beings standing and speaking right in front of you. Not even Aslan in this story can, can break through. And it struck me as I was listening to this story how our own hearts are capable of that very same kind of cynicism. And not just about Aslan, but about Jesus himself. How much more capable are we to be cynical about one another if we are capable of being cynical about Jesus? Think about that for just a second. Jesus, people are cynical about Jesus. Before grace came to you, there were probably a variety of levels of cynicism in your own heart about Jesus. If we're capable of being cynical about a perfect being, how much more capable are we of being cynical about one another when we aren't perfect beings and we do things wrong? Jesus never did anything wrong. Aslan never did anything wrong. They had to set up a fake Aslan to evoke the, the dwarf's cynicism. But how much easier is it for us to slip into cynicism about one another, knowing that we're not perfect like that? We aren't perfect like Jesus. We do sinful things. We behave foolishly at times. Sometimes we behave selfishly. You don't need a false Denny in order to be disappointed in Denny. Okay? Um, there's more than enough material in the real Denny for you to be disappointed in. And you don't even have to know me that well for that to happen. And the same can be said of you. So how are we going to treat each other in light of these realities? Are we going to live in this cynicism and refuse to see any evidences of grace that present themselves before us so that all that we can see in one another is the bad? Is that, is that the direction we're going to go? Or... Will you become so cynical 
about your brother or sister in Christ that no matter what they say or do, you now interpret it as darkness and cunning and attempt to take you in like the dwarves were taken in. Now, I'm bringing all of this up because apparently this is the kind of cynicism that the Apostle Paul was facing at, um, in between the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He was looking at a congregation that had gotten cynical about him. And his own word to them was being challenged at one point. They had gotten to a place where they weren't viewing him as their spiritual father. He had planted that church, established that church. You remember in Acts chapter 18? And they were now at a point, apparently, where they were actually questioning his truthfulness to them as an apostle. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet, go ahead and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 15 through 22. Now, this passage is not going to make any sense to you if you don't understand how the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians got so fraught between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So I want to spend a little bit of time trying to explain that to you. There was a period of time after Paul left Corinth, uh, after he wrote 1 Corinthians, actually, while he was writing 1 Corinthians, where his ministry was based out of Ephesus. So if you're we don't have a map, but, uh, you know, Ephesus would be uh, in Asia Minor, and across the Aegean Sea is Corinth over here, okay? So he's away from them, and he's, his ministry is based over here, and that's where he wrote 1 Corinthians from. So he's based out of there, and at, um, at the end of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, he wrote about his intention to travel from Ephesus through Macedonia, which is kind of north of Greece, um, through Macedonia to Corinth in order to spend a, a long amount of time with them. So I'm coming to you, he says at the end of chapter 16. I'm coming to you. I don't want to spend just a little bit of time. I want to spend the whole winter with, with you. So he's going to spend this ex extended amount of time, he says, with the congregation in Corinth, even the whole winter. But at some point after he sent that letter to them, he changes his plans. Timothy had come to him from Corinth, we know from the end of uh, chapter... 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 10. We know by the time he wrote 2 Corinthians, Timothy was back to him. So Timothy had come to him and had communicated to him, apparently, what was going on in, in Corinth. And it looks like he had perhaps reported to him that things weren't going so well in Corinth. Whatever the reason was, Paul changed his plans about his travel. He wasn't going to go through Macedonia and go down, down to Corinth. He just went straight to Corinth. He makes this, it seems like, an emergency visit. He goes straight to Corinth from Ephesus. When he gets there, it doesn't go well. They're in a stir. And a leading figure in the church stands up to Paul and challenges his authority over the congregation. You can read about this. It's alluded to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4. We'll spend some more time on that next, next week. So even though this person rises up to resist Paul, and get this, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said, he's a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. I mean, think about the gravity of this. They're, they're challenging an apostle of the Lord Jesus. Even though this person rises up to resist Paul, the congregation as a whole does nothing to support or defend Paul. 
And Paul says that he doesn't want to have another visit like that. He says this later in the book, but he doesn't want to have another visit like that to them where he was so, so grieved. So you think about this. Have you ever been unjustly attacked by someone? I've been unjustly attacked by someone before. And I found that perhaps even more painful than the attack is when friends who know me and stand aloof and don't come to my defense and maybe even give indication that they agree with the attack. And you begin to wonder if your friends might be looking at you with a kind of cynicism and mistrust. It looks like that's what's going on with Paul here. He's going to allude to his feelings after this visit. And he just says it was a very painful visit. It's painful. In fact, when you read in the commentaries, they refer to it over and over as the painful visit. And so as a result of this, Paul doesn't follow through with this extended period. Remember, he told them in the end of 1 Corinthians, I'm coming to you, I'm going to stay with you all winter. Well, that doesn't happen, okay? Paul takes off at this point. He doesn't stay for this long time. He leaves and he goes straight back to Ephesus after this confrontation. So as a result of this painful visit, Paul writes them a letter. And that letter is now lost to us. So there's a letter that was written before 1 Corinthians, and there was a letter written after 1 Corinthians. Both of them are lost to us, but they're referred to in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Well, now Paul refers to this other letter that he wrote to them. And in this letter, he was pretty hard on them. That letter called on the Corinthians to discipline the guy who had opposed him and who had caused him so much pain. And by doing so, they were to show that they were, they were being solid with Paul and not with the opponent of Paul. See, can you see how this relationship with Paul and the Corinthians got really fraught in between those two books? Well, eventually, um, Titus goes and visits Corinth. Remember, Paul's based in Ephesus. Titus goes to Corinth. Um, Paul eventually goes to, to Macedonia. Paul meets up with Titus in Macedonia, apparently. And Titus brings Paul news that the Corinthians had, by and large, responded favorably to Paul's severe letter, that one that's, that's lost to us. And so um, that's good news. Now, I don't think that the whole congregation was pacified at this point. Because if you, when you read through 2 Corinthians, you can tell there's still some issues that are there. But Paul is writing 2 Corinthians to express joy that they had responded, at least the ones that did, had responded favorably. And he writes to explain to them why he had changed his travel plans. There seems to be this question in the air about all of that. And so Paul wants to put to rest any question that he is a man of his word simply because he changed his plans for this extended visit to them. And so I think he's perhaps addressing any lingering attitude like, look, you don't come, you know, you don't come and stay with us for the whole winter like you said, Paul. You come and unload on us. You're harsh. Then you leave. You don't even do what you promised to do. We're not going to be taken in again by you anymore. In case there's any of that left, Paul is addressing those questions that are lingering in the air. And so Paul has, the last time, this was back in May, but um, we could tell in the last three verses before this passage, Paul was already explaining himself, um, saying that he behaved toward them with simplicity and godly sincerity. 
And he didn't behave towards them with earthly wisdom. And he says, I haven't written to you anything other than what you read and understand. I'm not doing double speak with you here. I'm being truthful with you. And so as we come to verse 15, it looks like Paul is continuing this attempt to dispel any grounds for that attitude of suspicion that the Corinthians had, had towards him of reading everything he says in this really cynical light. He's trying, to, he's trying to wipe this away. So yes, Paul has this change of plans in his travel. The visit and visits didn't go as, as planned. But that should not be a cause for the Corinthians to question his character. It's no grounds for cynicism towards Paul. Why is that? Well, there's three reasons, and these are the three points of the sermon. It's a long intro, but here's the three points. Paul, the reason it's not a reason for cynicism is because Paul aimed not to harm, but to help. That's in verses 15 through 16. Paul did not lie, but spoke the truth in verses 17 through 19. And Paul is grounded in the truth by God himself, and that's in verses 20 through 22. So, no grounds for cynicism towards Paul because Paul aimed not to harm but to help. Paul did not lie but spoke the truth. And Paul is grounded in the truth by God himself. So the first thing here is Paul aimed not to harm but to the help. So everybody look at verse 15. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Now, as Paul says that he wants them to have a second experience of grace, it would be completely anachronistic and wrong to read that as some kind of second blessing theology. As if he were saying, you know, I, I know you're saved, but now I want to come to you a second time so you can get baptized in the Spirit or something like that. that that's not what he's talking about at all right here. It's a little more practical than that. Paul is just explaining the change in his, his travel plans that he had announced to them at the end of 1 Corinthians. He's saying that, look, I had planned to do you one better even than what I told you at the end of 1 Corinthians. I was planning not to visit you once, but I was planning to visit you twice. That was my intention. So look at verse 16. So the first blessing and then a second blessing would have been a blessing associated with two different visits. So verse 16, he says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. You know, and eventually Paul wants to get to Jerusalem. He wants to bring this offering to Jerusalem. But he's saying, this is what my plans were. I was going to come to you first and then after going to Macedonia. So he's saying he's planning to come to them both before and after going to Macedonia. That's more than what he had promised them at the end of 1 Corinthians. And he says that I wanted to come to you twice so that you could have this second experience of grace, meaning that um, he wanted to have, every time he ministers to them, it's a, it's a means of grace to them. And so he wants to minister the grace of God to them, both going and coming from Macedonia. That's Paul's way. You can go back and read in the book of Acts. It's really clear that he's not just planting churches when he does his ministry. He's coming back to the churches he plants whenever he can to preach to them and strengthen them and to establish them in the faith. And he had every intention of pursuing that very same kind of follow-up ministry with the Corinthians again, both going and coming from Macedonia. That's what he's telling them here. 
But notice what he says at the beginning of verse 15. This is really important. He says, because I was sure of this. Literally, it's something like, in this confidence. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you. Because he was sure of what? Well, you have to look at verse 14 to get the answer to that question. Look at verse 14. The very last sentence, it says, On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. On the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. What does that mean? Paul's desire to come to them and to minister the grace of God to them, going and coming from Macedonia, is not based on confidence in himself or even confidence in them. It's based on his confidence that God had done and is doing a work in them. He's so confident in that work that he says, on the last day, we are all going to be before Jesus boasting in one another. Which is just another way of saying, you know, Paul's saying, I have absolute confidence that the Lord is going to make you persevere in faith and love and good deeds until the very end. I wanted to come to you because I wanted to be a part of the work that God is doing in you right now before that day. In other words, when Paul looked at the Corinthians, the Corinthians, okay, remember the Corinthians? You remember 1 Corinthians? They got a guy having an affair with his stepmother. They got people saying, maybe the dead aren't really raised. They got people dividing themselves into factions. I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, uh, you know, I'm of Apollos. They got problems in Corinth. Divisions and issues in Corinth. And they didn't just all go away after 1 Corinthians. But Paul, when he looks at them, even after all the confrontations of 1 Corinthians and everything in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he still wasn't cynical towards them. He wasn't thinking about all their failures and running away from them. He was thinking about the evident grace of God in them and running toward them. In this confidence, I came to you. That I will be your boast and you will be my boast. This is so important. Uh, the, the most realistic war movie that I ever saw was Saving Private Ryan. Anybody ever see that movie? When that film came out in 1998, it, was, it really gripped the nation. The, the first 20 minutes of that movie are 20 of the most harrowing minutes of any movie ever made. Because it's a depiction of the carnage that really happened when the United States soldiers landed on Omaha Beach on, on D-Day. Which is, it was a really, you know, according to all historical accounts, it was horrific there. And this depiction in the movie was so realistic, it was, it was just hard to watch. But I remember being struck by the depiction of the medics in particular on that beach. And the work that they had to do as the bullets were flying past their heads. The lead medic would come upon a wounded soldier. All this battle is exploding around them. The lead medic would come upon a wounded soldier, give him the once-over, look at all of his injuries, and then make an instant judgment about how he was supposed to be treated. 
And for many of the soldiers, the medic would look at them writhing in their own pain and blood, and he would simply say, morphine. And that was code for, there's nothing we can do for this guy. He's going to die. Give him something for the pain. In other words, morphine was a proclamation of of hopelessness about this guy. That judgment made by the medic in an instant determined whether anybody was going to come to save that soldier's life or not, whether they were going to try to help him or whether they would just leave him to die because he was a hopeless case. Those kinds of horrific judgments may be sadly necessary in a desperate situation on a battlefield, but they are not right among brothers and sisters within the church. The only time that Paul gets anywhere close to that kind of morphine attitude is at the end of a process of church discipline when he hands somebody over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. But even then, there's still the hope that that person might repent and be reconciled that their spirit might be saved in the day of Christ Jesus. That's as close as Paul gets, but even then it's not a situation of total hopelessness. Paul's regular interactions with some of the most obstinate sheep normally is marked by hopefulness about them. Not in them, but in the grace of God, evident in them. And that work of God is what motivated him. That's why Paul says, I wanted to come to you because I was confident that I'm going to be your boast. You're going to be my boast. All of our problems now, one day are going to be swept away. Okay? I'm not getting cynical about you. I want to come, come to you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 4 to 7. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you. In Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul thinks about them. He says, the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. That's what he felt about them, even in spite of all the junk. If we are going to love each other and care for each other and not drift into cynicism about each other, that is the mindset that we have to have. You know why? Because it's easy to get cynical with fellow sinners. It's easy to get disappointed with one another because we're sometimes going to do things that, dis- that are disappointing. Because sometimes we sin. That's why we have to keep short accounts between one another and among one another in, in this church. We have to be humble. We have to extend forgiveness. We have to receive forgiveness. But all of that stuff, that grace that's normally supposed to characterize relationships within a church, all of that stuff is really difficult to do if we become cynical about each other. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Paul's ministry could not have proceeded if he were cynical about them. If we have the attitude when someone messes up in the congregation, well, it figures that's just the kind of guy he is. 
Of course he hurt your feelings. Don't you know how self-absorbed he is? That's just who he is. Every time we start thinking about one another like this, it's like we're saying morphine. That guy's a goner. No signs of life there. That's just not how Paul is. It's not how we're supposed to be either. Paul looks at the cranky, cantankerous, errant Corinthian brothers and sisters and he says, because I was sure of this, sure of the grace of God at work in you, I wanted to come to you again. You're my people, warts and all, because you're God's people with God's spirit. How could I ever be cynical about you? Of course I'm coming to you again. I love you, rascals. So these people have no reason to be cynical about Paul because Paul wasn't cynical about them. Paul didn't aim to harm them by desiring to visit them twice, but he he was trying to help them. I wanted to bring you a second blessing, and I wanted to come to you because I had this great confidence about you that we're going to be boasting about each other in the day of the Lord Jesus. That's why I want to be with you. So Paul aimed to not to harm them, but to help them in verses 15 and 16. But number two, Paul did not lie, but spoke the truth to them in verses 17 through 19. Everybody look at verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Literally, Paul is saying, did I make use of vacillation? And the word translated as vacillation is a term that refers to a condition of treating a matter frivolously as by irresponsible change of mind. That's what he's talking about there when he talks about vacillation. Am I just irresponsibly changing my mind about things when I tell you stuff? Like I don't really mean what I say? In other words, since my travel plans changed from what I wrote to you and from what I intended to do, was I shooting straight to you to begin with? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Meaning, was I being sinful when I made my plans and announced them to you? Sinful in what way? Well, sinful in a lying way, as if to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Talking out of both sides of his mouth. And so it seems that Paul is addressing a question that perhaps was on the minds of his readers in Corinth. Was Paul really truthful with them about his plans to visit with them? That's the background here. And notice that he's using that language of yes, yes, and no, no. He's taking that language directly from the lips of Jesus. Jesus taught his disciples that they were not to make oaths. You remember that? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 34 But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. And anything beyond these is of evil. That's what Jesus said. About this, And his point was not that there might not be a formal judicial setting in which you could give testimony under oath. Jesus himself gives testimony under oath later in Matthew's gospel. Jesus' point is that a disciple's word should be his bond. If you have 
when you're talking to somebody, if you have to say, listen, I swear to God, whatever, or I swear on my mother's life, whatever, if you have to say that stuff before somebody will believe you, there's a problem with your word. What does that say about your word? The standard for the Christian is truth. No oaths required. You do what you say, say what you do, and everyone can rely on you because they can rely on your words. And so you can't say yes and no at the same time. That would be a contradiction. And disciples don't speak in contradictions. We speak in truth. It's one or the other, and whichever you say is reliable and true. That's what Jesus taught was just you know, basic discipleship. You don't have to swear on your mother's life in order for people to believe you. You just say something and everybody goes, that's true. And so Paul is raising this question about his own truthfulness and reliability to his, in, of his words to the Corinthians. Was I contradicting the truth when I said to you, I would come to you? Was I speaking out of both sides of my, my mouth? Yes, yes, no, no. And he's probably raising that question because that's the question that they had. Well, Paul answers the accusation. Look at verse 18. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. Paul says our word, he's using the plural there, but you'll remember from our previous study in 2 Corinthians, he uses the plural oftentimes to refer to himself, perhaps Timothy and Silas along with them, but he's, he's certainly referring to himself. And so he's saying that I've not contradicted myself or the truth in the way that I have spoken to you. You may have looked at me cynically. You may have looked at my words to you cynically, but I haven't lied to you or spoken falsely to you. As surely as God himself is faithful, I myself have spoken faithfully to you. I have never lied to you. And it's interesting at this point to go back and actually look at what Paul said to the Corinthians about his plans to visit them at the end of 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But at the end of 1 Corinthians, when he announced these plans to them, this is what he said. He said, but I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia. This is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 5. I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter, that you may send me on my way wherever I go. Perhaps. There was a little bit of conditionality in there. And then he says this, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. In announcing his plans to, to them, Paul explicitly made room for the providence of God to change his plans. Circumstances could change in such a way that his plans might have to change. And he told them that. And Paul was totally upfront about that. So there's no vacillation here with, with Paul. Paul didn't change. They changed. They were the ones coddling this rebellious member who, who had come to oppose Paul when he came on the second visit. They were the ones who didn't stand up for Paul. And so Paul changed his plans, not because he wanted to, but because they hurt him so deeply. So Paul's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. That would be totally incommensurate with his being an apostle. So he says in the next verse, look at verse 19. He says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, 
whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Now, Paul's referring to Silas and Timothy. They were his junior partners in ministry and with him at this time. And he's recalling, in particular, their gospel preaching, the gospel preaching of all three of them to the Corinthians. One commentator says this about verse 19. He says, It seems Paul felt that if the reliability of his word about travel plans were being called into question, then the reliability of his gospel message may also be questioned. So here he asserts there is no equivocation in the gospel he preached. He's connecting his truthfulness about his communications to them about traveling to the truthfulness of the gospel. He's really up in the ante here. So Paul's saying, my integrity in this matter is on the level of Jesus' integrity. Jesus doesn't change or vacillate. I haven't changed or vacillated with you in this matter. And it would be wrong of you to charge me as if I had. So the implication seems to be that if there is a charge against Paul's word in this matter, it cannot stand. It's groundless. And if there is a challenge to Paul, what Paul said to them, it's probably based on a cynical reading of what he actually said. Where would that cynicism toward Paul have come from? It's, it's hard to know. We're looking at one side of this. We do know that the opponent raised up in Corinth when he was there. Perhaps the person who rose up against him to speak against him during his painful visit. Perhaps that person had an influence in what he said about Paul to make people question Paul. Maybe the person who caused him pain and whom they had by this time disciplined. Maybe it was that person. That person not only causes Paul pain, but he's perhaps the reason why all the people in Corinth became cynical. That's what I'm suggesting. Just when, when you think about this, it, it's helpful because this is why um, gossip and slander can be so injurious to a congregation. It's, it's why they're so deadly to relationships in general. It's why they're so deadly to a church. When one person goes around and begins to poison one believer against another believer, like this person opposed to Paul, guess what happens? The poisoned believer can become bitter and cynical against the brother who hasn't maybe even done anything to him. And the poisoned believer may be operating off of false and partial information. And that kind of situation destroys trust and relationships. That's what happens. Just think about this. Have you ever started to look at somebody, a brother or sister in Christ? You ever started to look at them with the stink eye? Not because of anything that they did or said to you, but because of what you've heard about them? A negative report that came to you about them? that you heard from someone else. I'm just telling you that stuff is like a poison. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 26, 20, without wood, a fire goes out. Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. You want to see relationships go up in flames? Start slandering. Start jabbering about one another and saying negative things about one another. You want to see that fire go out and you want to see peace? Without a gossip, a quarrel dies down. 
He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Proverbs 20, 19. Spreading negative reports about someone, two people who have nothing to do with it, whether the reports are true or untrue, is ungodly behavior. It damages reputations and destroys relationships, sometimes irreparably. And when you look at what was going on with Paul and the Corinthians, it looked like things were holding, holding on by a thin thread there for a while. Thankfully, they came back around. But that's what happens. Paul had someone who opposed him in Corinth. Now his word is in question. But in Paul's case, this is so good for us. In Paul's case, the negative impression of Paul's word is totally unfounded. We can be assured of that because Paul's communication of his travel plans, both at the end of 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians, are canonical. Like, we know that they're Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. They're without error. Okay? He never said anything wrong to them in those letters. I'm not saying he was a sinless man. I'm saying every communication in first and for everything he said in First and Second Corinthians is true. None of that was wrong. So his, his communication in this instance, is with, with, it, this instance is without error. To the degree that the Corinthians were doubting the truthfulness of what he said in these writings, to that degree they were absolutely in error and unjustified in their suspicions. And Paul still seems to be concerned at least about some of them. Later in the book, in chapter 12, in verses 20 and 21, Paul says this, I f For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented. And he, go, he goes on. So he's obviously received a report that some of them have repented, but he's, he's worried that there are some who haven't. And he's worried that some of these issues may be still remaining in some people's hearts. And so Paul's saying to them now, look, no matter what your impression is of me or how you formed that impression, I always spoke the truth to you. I, ne I never lied to you. Have you ever had those kinds of suspicions about someone based not on your experience with them, but based almost entirely on hearing someone else's unflattering portrayal of them? Don't let that happen. If that kind of unjust suspicion can happen to Paul, it can happen to us, okay? With his perfect communications, it can happen with our imperfect communications, all right? We have to resist this. Don't associate with a gossip. Third thing, Paul aimed not to harm but to help. Paul did not lie but spoke the truth. Paul is grounded in truth by God himself. Everybody look at verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Now the Old Testament has many promises from God concerning the messianic age. Paul is saying that none of these promises will fail to find its fulfillment in Christ. None of them. Not one word from God's mouth is going to drop to the ground. God has made and will make good on every single one of those promises through Christ. And so Paul is, again, tying his own truthfulness 
to God's truthfulness. God is not giving yes and no answers to his promises. He doesn't contradict himself. He answers all his promises with a yes in Jesus. Paul's using, in this language that he uses here, the imagery from early Christian worship, where there was a leader who would offer a public praise to God, and the congregation would answer with an amen, or amen, which means it's true. It's your agreement. That's what that means. Paul is saying that God speaks, and he says, I'm, I'm able to offer the amen because of Christ's work in me. I'm able to affirm God's truth because of Christ's work in me. So he says, through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. God speaks truthfully, Paul says. I speak truthfully because of the grace of God in me. That's, that's the point here. Look at verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Now, remember, the us here, he's using those first-person plurals, but he's talking about himself here primarily. God who, it's God who establishes me with you in Christ and has anointed me. So Paul's saying that the God who makes good on all his promises through Christ is the very same God who made him an apostle and who enables him to be a straight shooter with them. The God who establishes me with you in Christ and has anointed us, that God. He's saying, you can trust me because God is the one who established me in Christ. Not only that, God has anointed him, which calls to mind all the anointings in the Old Testament when certain leaders had oil poured on them and were thereby set aside for a work or a task that God had given to them. Leaders like Aaron or David, they were anointed with oil, set apart for a certain task, Except Paul is saying here that God's anointing has him set apart, he's implying, as an, as an apostle. It's an authoritative, truthful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See what he's doing here? He's, he's, he's buttressing his word to them as an apostle. So he says, it's God who establishes, with you in Christ, establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, verse 22, and who has also put his seal on us, put his seal on me, and given me his spirit in my heart as a guarantee. So he's making profound statements here about what it means to be an apostle. A seal calls to mind the wax that was used to seal up a letter. And a ring with a unique personal insignia was used to mark that wax seal on a letter in the ancient world. And so that seal signifies the identity and the authority of the person whose ring was pressed into the wax seal. And he's saying that he's put this seal upon me and given his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This seal seems to be this spirit. The tangible evidence of that seal is the presence of God, the Holy Spirit within Paul. Paul's words are animated by the spirit of Christ himself. And that spirit dwells in Paul like he dwells in us. As a guarantee of more and greater things to come. That guarantee is like a down payment, expecting more blessing to be poured out later. But the present spirit is what establishes Paul and confirms that his words and preaching to them are true and reliable. They have no reason to question him or to be cynical about him. So Paul aimed not to help, uh, not to harm, but to help. He did not lie, but he spoke the truth. And finally, he's grounded in that truth by God himself. By the Lord Jesus, who made him an apostle. 
all that's the case, let's think about some applications here. Just a couple of things. First thing is this. Is it ever right to question an apostle? No. <laughs> okay? Um, if we had an apostle living among us, we would find that apostle to be a sinner. We would find him to err sometimes. We don't have an apostle living among us. You know how we hear from apostles now? This word. What's left behind in this word, the apostles' words, Paul's words, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, is never wrong. It's never right for you to disagree with an apostle in the word of God. If this passage teaches us anything, it teaches us that God himself guarantees the truthfulness of the apostolic witness left for us in the New Testament. Because of that, there can be no legitimate grounds to call any of this word into question. It's all true. All of it. If we find ourselves out of step with it, we are out of step with God. If we find ourselves out of step with something in here, it's not this that's wrong, it's us that's wrong. Always. So if you don't take anything else away from this message, please take that away. This can never be wrong. We order our lives according to this. The second thing is this. And I'm circling back to something I mentioned earlier. If these believers in Corinth can get crosswise with Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, do you think it's possible that we can get crosswise with each other? You bet we can, and we do, and we have. The question is, what are we going to do about that? Not if it happens, but when it happens. Obviously, we have to be committed to the biblical means of conflict resolution. We go to each other in private. We don't go chatterbox to everybody. When we got, I got a problem with you. I don't go tell 10 people and then come talk to you. I don't go tell 10 people then not talk to you. I don't talk to the 10 people. I talk to you. Okay, that's, how we, that's what we do, Matthew 18. We're committed to dealing with one another in the conflict. We go to each other in private, work through disagreements with all parties committed to seeing it through. But it becomes impossible for that to happen when we lose sight of the big picture, when we lose sight of how God is at work in each one of us. If we forget that, we can become cynical, yell morphine, and just exit from the process. But that's not what God calls us to do. Maybe the biggest takeaway from this text, at least for me as I was thinking about this, is Paul's large-hearted, full-throated confidence that he has in the grace of God at work in God's people. And so he says, because I'm sure of this grace of God at work in you, I'm so certain that I will be your boast and you'll be my boast. I had every reason to expect good things when I came to you and when I come to you again. Do we have that kind of heart towards one another. I love the final scene in the, the book, The Last Battle, where you see all the heroes of Narnia together for the first time in Aslan's new creation of Narnia. You have ancient heroes and new heroes. Some of these heroes, when they were in their adventures together, they were quite at odds with one another. And 
now that they're all gathered in, in the new, the new Narnia creation, Aslan's land, they're all together, they're whole, they're happy in Aslan's country. Even Eustace, that little brat, who was so self-involved and selfish that it, he turned himself into this hoarding dragon. Aslan had come to Eustace and spoken to him, and all the dragon fell away. The skin, the dragon skin peeled off, and the real Eustace, the new Eustace, came forth. Even Eustace, there they all are together in Narnia. Nobody's thinking about Eustace's former priggishness anymore. Nobody's thinking about that. You're my boast, I'm your boast. Nobody's thinking about Edmund's betrayal with the witch. You're my boast, I'm your boast. Broad smiles further up, further in, forever in Aslan's land. I, I'm, I, this is the perspective that we have to have about each other. We have to have this end point in view and have hopefulness about each other. I will be your boast, you will be mine, further up, further in, together, beginning now and forever unto the age because of Jesus and what he did for us. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would take us further up and further in now. I pray that you would take folks like me who are the half the glass half empty guys in the room and who tend towards cynicism sometimes I pray you'd forgive us and you'd you'd help us to have this beaming vision of what is to come and what you're going to do with us and in us and through us Help us to see all of our afflictions and disputes as momentary and light and dimming compared to the glory that is to come. Give us this perspective to bring us forward in unity and in love, the real cry-together, hope-together love. Bring us together. Make us your people and make us whole. And Lord, I pray that you would grow beautiful things from what you're doing in and among us and make us fruitful and able to bear witness of the grace of God at work in us and in this world. Father, we ask you to do it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.